This is Yudaha Cohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. This past Sunday, the 25th of Shvat, was the Yom B'tira, the Yerzet of Yair Stern, warrior poet who initiated the struggle for freedom from British rule. And this coming Shabbat is actually the Yerzet of his successor, Natan Yelin Mor, who was the political leader of the Lohamei Cherut Israel, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, the Lehi, after the assassination of Yeir Stern, when the Lehi was brought back from the dead, essentially, after the British had thought they'd completely wiped out the underground. It was Natan Yelin Moore and uh, Dr. Yisrael Eldad and uh, Yitzhak Shamir, who essentially put it back together. And Yelin Moore, of course, was the political leader. And to discuss Yelin Moore's life, and legacy, I thought it'd be a great idea to have our managing director, the Neat, and some of the young visionaries in the movement join me on the show. So um, I'm just going to give everyone an opportunity to introduce themselves. Say hello. Hi, I'm Denit. Uh, I've been with the Vision Movement for about 10 years now. I've been working with the Vision Movement officially for about three years. All right. I'm Arya Shapiro. Uh, I first got involved with the Vision Movement in 2016 uh, while I was studying abroad in Jerusalem as part of my degree in history and international relations. And I'm now learning in Yeshivat Mechon Meir in Jerusalem. Right on. All right. My name is Shai. I uh, have been involved with the Vision Movement for about six years now. Uh, I got involved when I was doing my gap year program in Yeshivat Araita in the old city of Jerusalem. And I've brought it to Canada where I did a degree in political science and Jewish studies. And I'm just trying to get into that uh, career field. All right. Hi, I'm Samantha. I've been involved with Vision since 2018, where I interned for them over the summer. And I'm currently a graduate student studying United States foreign policy and analysis. All right. Yona? I'm Yona Ben-Avram, or Yona Greenblatt. I've been with the Vision Movement for about six years at this point, around the same time as Shai. I write a lot of poetry for Vision Magazine, and I'm currently pursuing a bachelor's in humanities at Harvard University. All right. Well, pretty much everybody here uh, contributes in some way, shape, or form to Vision Magazine. I think that's definitely a good uh, common ground for everybody here. Uh, so, everybody, welcome. This Shabbat, Yerzeit, Nathaniel, and more. You know, to a certain extent, I think it's clear, at least to us and probably to some outsiders as well, that Gerard, that uh, Yellen Moore is a very influential figure in our movement in terms of ideas, politics. I don't know, who'd like to get us started talking a little bit about where his political analysis kind of fits into uh, a lot of the work that we do. So I think uh, what was special, uh, one of the many things that was special about Gerard, uh, Nathaniel and Moore was that he was really the first visionary uh, in at least modern Jewish history to combine like a real Jewish nationalism with like a real leftist ideology. You know, he went after 1948 when he found the Fighters Party in the Knesset. It, it was like on, on like building a, like a real true Jewish socialist society in Israel. Uh, and that's sort of something that we don't really see today in Israel's politics. Um, so that I think was really special. Well, I think part of what made Nathaniel Amor so special is his prescience. He, uh, through his 
clear vision of how he saw Israel, um, both in its pre-independence days as a fighter in the Lehi and an organizer in the Lehi, um, and also after the creation of the states through its varying political developments, he was really able to, to see the way forward and predict so many of the things that have happened in our relationships with the Palestinians and our relationships with the rest of the world politically. And we like to say that we're creating a, a new conversation for a new generation, but in many ways, we're really bringing back ideas of his that he brought, brought up decades ago that have very much fallen by the wayside and been, been underground. Right. Uh, I would definitely say that Israeli society was not ready for a lot of Yellen Moore's ideas when he was still alive. And I definitely would like to believe that Israeli society is more ready because of some of the demographic and sociocultural shifts in Israeli society. We're probably much more psychologically ready to, first of all, engage with and take seriously some of the ideas that he put forward. Especially, and maybe we should be specific, like, especially in regards to indigenizing into the region, becoming an organic part of the Semitic region, uh, peace with our neighbors, built on an anti-imperialist shared struggle, um, keeping the region neutral, kind of free of outside agendas, and really seeing the type of state Israel should be as like a revolutionary state. Seeing the state of Israel become a revolutionary state that really sides with the oppressed of the world and not the oppressors of the world. I just wanted to build off of what you just said about seeing Jews and Israelis as indigenous to the region. That's really what Yellenmore brought to the table in that he was one of the first people to really uh, recognize the fight against the British mandate of Palestine as an anti-imperialist struggle and to unite Semitic action in the region. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways from, or the biggest legacy that we should take from Yellenmore and continue that struggle is is that anti-imperialist fight that he ignited. Right, and like seeing the other native peoples of the region as our allies, as our natural allies. It's also important to note, I don't know if Denit mentioned that in the fighters party, the Lohamim party, the political party that Yelen Moore uh, took into the first Knesset, it was one of the only parties in Israel's first Knesset that had both Jews and Palestinians on its list of candidates. And so I think that this idea, you know, most of Israeli society then and even now to a certain extent, sees the other peoples of the region, especially the Palestinians, as the enemy, whereas the West is the ally or the ally we want. And I think Yellen Moore saw that in reverse. He saw the West, you know, specifically the imperialist powers, as the enemies or potential enemies we need to be very weary of and careful not to get too entangled with whereas the other peoples of the region were our most natural allies that we should be teaming up with, that we should be forging relationships with and building the region with. Yeah, just to build, up, build off what everyone said, um, I think that uh, what Israel's political leadership lacks right now is the political creativity to break free from this right-left structure that is really a Western import into our politics. Um, because I, I think that in many ways, Nathan Yellenmore actually went deeper into the nationalist camp and deeper into the revolutionary left camp than the right and left because they're imported from the West and they just don't represent our own values and culture. Right. No, I think that's definitely true to a certain extent. Obviously, you know, Yellenmore was influenced by a very internationalist perspective that was coming from the left. 
But at the same time, as I think everybody's mentioned, he definitely, at least in Lehi, he definitely saw the Jewish people as an oppressed people with a national struggle that was a progressive struggle. And once the fight against British rule was over, like once the British had left the country and the state of Israel was declared, I think he very much saw the Jewish state that was being created as destined to be this revolutionary state that would take the side of the oppressed on the world stage. And I think he also had a very, very clear vision for the region. Uh, Initially, his solution for this country before the Six-Day War was federation, that the land of Israel would be home to Jews and Palestinians along a federation model. You know, bad, good, that's something maybe we can discuss. Maybe it was something that was interesting at the time. I don't know if that's something I would support now, but there are certainly elements of it that I think could be valuable to us. By the way, upholding the legacy ideas analysis of any historic figure doesn't necessarily obligate one to accept all of their political conclusions. I think Yellen Moore had some very interesting ideas and he had some very different ideas over different periods of his life. I think that Yellen Moore in Lehi was certainly different from Yellen Moore in Beitar. Uh, Yellen Moore in the Lochamim party was different from Yellen Moore in Lehi. Yellen Moore in Semitic action was different from Yellen Moore in the Lochamim party. Um, and he kept, I think, evolving throughout his life. And a lot of his political conclusions might have been based on the you know, material conditions and concrete realities of any given time. I mean, that was really his strong suit. One of the reasons why the Lehi was so successful, and I actually heard this uh, specifically from Ari Eldad, the son of Dr. Israel Eldad. He once told me that what was really important about Lehi, what really made Lehi successful is that every bullet, and we're talking about, of course, an underground organization, basically an urban guerrilla organization fighting British rule. And what made them successful is that every bullet, every explosion, everything they did was based on a very sophisticated political analysis of the conditions and the relationships between different forces. And that was really Yellen Moore. You know, Eldad was the ideologue, the ideas from the perspective of Jewish history and Jewish destiny and Jewish identity. That was really Eldad. The actual actions, assassinations, the attacks, that was Shamir. But the politics, meaning the analysis, kind of the game of chess that one has to play in order to really defeat a world empire, that was Yellen Moore. Yeah, so uh, Yellenmore he wrote a series of articles for Haaretz after, after the Six-Day War. And I I, I just want to sort of touch on on what you had said um, about aligning ourselves with the occupying powers as opposed to the oppressed in the world. And it's important to remember that Nathaniel and Moore was fighting as a member of one of the colonized peoples against the colonizing power. That was his worldview for years. And then it kicked out the colonizing power. And he like he really, really does understand the mindset of the Ogden Prime. And, and, and I just can only assume that, you know, from his point of view, to then completely switch sides to being supportive of occupying powers, it, it just didn't really fit in with everything that he had fought for up until the creation of the state. It's actually really interesting because, because he has such a deep understanding of fighting occupying powers. I mean, the British considered him a terrorist for even years after 1948. Um, he sort of explains in this series of 
articles um, from 50 odd years ago, exactly what he expects the Palestinian people to do in order to fight what they view as an occupying power. And literally every single thing he said was going to happen has happened and is happening. And he just like, he really does have a, a very sharp understanding of these things. Because he was a freedom fighter himself. Because he was a freedom fighter himself. He came from that sort of perspective. He knew exactly how Israel would be fought against. And he like, really had a very, very sharp understanding of, of all of these political and ideological uh, struggles that would take place. Back in 1967, it was wood, and we see that it actually did take place. I saw, I think, Ori um, Avneri, who was active with Yellen Moore and Semitic Action, once uh, related a story, I think it's on YouTube, where he says that uh, Yellen Moore, during the Sinai campaign specifically, his attitude towards the state of Israel, specifically the Mapai government, actually siding with the British and French against the Egyptians in that conflict, it, he, he used a, a metaphor of an Israeli tank that during a war ended up in the wrong line of tanks, meaning there's like uh, the enemy and then there's like your side. And for some reason, this tank ended up in the line of enemy tanks, just kind of like going along as like one of the tanks, but at some point realizing, wait a minute, the tank in front of us is an enemy tank the tank in back of us is an enemy tank. We're in the wrong line here. And that was like a metaphor that Yellen Moore would use for Israel aligning itself with the British and the French, and I guess later the Americans, against other Semitic peoples and other peoples of the region. Building off of what Danit was saying, I think a lot of the, the power that Yellen Moore had to predict what the Palestinians would do and how they would react to what he saw as inevitable and as kind of Israeli political developments is that he wasn't afraid of the Palestinian narrative and whether he was hearing it from fellow Lehi fighters and fellow members of the, the fighters party or even random Palestinians he met on the streets of newly liberated Jerusalem. He was willing to listen to and internalize and even relate to the way that Palestinians were talking about themselves in a way that, unfortunately, so many Israeli leaders across the political spectrum uh, are afraid and unable to do. Right. Yeah, I think that's very true. He wasn't afraid of the Palestinian narrative. And certainly today we see a lot of Israelis, we see a lot of Zionists, we see a lot of people in the pro-Israel community just not willing to engage with that narrative, not willing to take it seriously, not willing to give it credibility, uh, and just kind of relating to it as a propaganda weapon to be used to disenfranchise us. So not willing to engage it, not willing to take it seriously, not willing to listen to it, which is unfortunate because you know, often we should be relating to criticism as messages we're meant to hear and internalize. It doesn't mean they're all true, uh, but I think that uh, we have nothing to lose and everything to gain from hearing criticisms others have of us, especially those who live with us or under us. And I think that Yellen Moore understood as a freedom fighter himself uh, and as somebody who really did see the Jews as an oppressed people who fought for our liberation and was now in a position of power really for the first time in, in thousands of years, 
that it was dangerous for us to ignore the things that people were saying and the criticisms that were being lodged against us. Like we need to hear this, we need to internalize this, and we need to figure out what our interests are. And again, we're talking about somebody who had a very keen and a very sharp analysis, but really we need to, as we always talk about in our movement, really identify what our interests are, what our objectives are, what our goals are, and then engage reality, engage the political reality based on the conditions that exist and the different forces at play in order to advance our struggle forward. Yeah, I wanted to say that um, there's a culminative theme with Yellenmore's activism um, after the State of Israel that, and I don't think it's unique to him specifically, uh, but we can still very much learn from it. Um, and that is that he recognized the state of Israel as a, a success, as like um, this is a, a stop in the movement, but it's not the end of the revolution. It's not, there's still so much more work to do. Um, and it's clear that he saw, uh, he had a, a vision when everyone else rested on their laurels. Yeah, no, that's very true. And I think that's what's so frustrating about uh, current Israeli leadership or, you know, the Hasbara industry is that they're not only unwilling to kind of engage with the political reality that we're living in today, but they're also unwilling to be critical of the Israeli government and the current policies, which are two things, engagement with the political reality and, and that criticism of current policies, I think, are the only way to really have a legitimate stand and have a legitimate opinion these days is, is you need to be able to criticize Israel and you need to be able to really look at the Palestinian narrative and see the legitimacy in it and, and sympathize with that in order to get anywhere or have any real say in the conversation. Right, otherwise you're just not in the conversation. Like usually what ends up happening on probably your campus, but definitely most campuses, uh, and even here, like even on the ground here in the land of Israel, the Israelis or pro-Israel people are really speaking to each other internally. The Palestinians are essentially doing the same thing, although I would say that Palestinians are definitely speaking more internationally because they have a more universal story that's certainly easier to understand by other people and, and certainly more pressing, meaning their situation is, you know, they are the weaker party in this conflict at the moment living under us. So definitely they have a lot more people to talk to globally, internationally, but we're not really speaking to each other because we're not willing to engage the stories, identities, basic assumptions of the other. And uh, ultimately, I think that hurts Israelis and Palestinians, but uh, it probably hurts us in very different ways. And also kind of our inability to, to recognize or unwillingness to recognize the power that we hold in the dynamic mm -hmm. is also a big part of it. Right. That like for the most part, Israelis don't realize how powerful we are. Yeah, or just don't want to acknowledge that. Well, I mean, uncomfortable with the power. Yeah, I, I think that's something that needs to be addressed because power is new for us. We've had no power for thousands of years. Like we really went for many, 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 many centuries with no power being stepped on by the rest of the world. And now we've come back to life and we have power, but I'm not sure we're comfortable with it. I, I get the sense that Israeli society or the Jewish people are not yet comfortable with power. I think we see it across the political spectrum. Some people just don't want to touch it. They're not comfortable with it. They don't want it. And some people 
are just looking to use it everywhere because they're so afraid of you know what happens if we're powerless again. But I think that neither are coming with the confidence of somebody who's comfortable with power. And I think that's really what's necessary. And I think that's actually where Yellen Moore was coming from. Yellen Moore was somebody who was able to take on the British Empire and win. I think he saw himself as powerful. I think he saw the state of Israel as powerful. And therefore, he wanted to engage our neighbors with confidence, not by throwing our power in their face, as many on the right like to do, but just to be confident in your own power and step into the conversation and engage. And I think Yellen Moore was definitely doing something very revolutionary. And I think that's what's necessary also now, obviously. Yeah, I wanted to say that Yellen Moore was able to navigate this false dichotomy between being an oppressed people and uh, uh, people with power. I think that we managed to be both at the same time. And I, I think that Yellen Moore, his leadership was able to navigate that. And I think it poses questions for us as to how we use that power and how, and while being an oppressed people and, and both can be true at the same time. Right. And that, you know, of course, brings us into the question of middle age and depressor and, and how anti-Semitism functions. Certainly, I would say that Yellen Moore's ideas are ideas that would help us to combat systemic anti-Semitism on a global level. Because exactly what Yellen Moore wanted Israel to struggle with and overcome is how anti-Semitism works in the current system. Yeah. So another thing that Yellen Moore um, just knew was going to happen back in the 60s, um, he wrote that a nation that's constantly dealing with an underground or a rebellion or, or a part of the population that is actively fighting against the government or the control or whatever, whatever it is, that, that kind of nation can't really function properly. They can't really develop their culture. They can't really develop normally like a, like a normal nation would, you know? Right. And uh, I think that's a, a big part of, our problem, our, our leaders in Israel, you know, all they talk about <laughs> is security this and security that. Like, you, we're, we're coming up to elections and, and no, I won't say no, most politicians running for the Knesset, they don't actually have a real vision. They all, all they talk about is, well, now also Corona, but it's, we're, we're just constantly in a state of emergency. You know, we can't really even think about developing in the way that a nation would. And, and, Gera understood that, and, and that's why he said that he thinks like the very next step that we need to take as a nation is to make peace and become unified with our neighbors so that we can actually function properly. No, that's very true. And I think that also brings us back to this idea of the post-colonial conversation that any nation who liberates itself from foreign rule has to engage in that conversation, has to actually have a national conversation over who we are and what kind of society we're trying to build. And we've never done that. Israel has, like you said, Denise, always been in a state of emergency, whether it's a security situation, whether it's a health crisis. Israel has always essentially been on defense and we need to think about what offense looks like to develop as a nation. We're kind of like caught in like irons, you know, like in a sailing ship, there's no wind in our sails and that can, you know, help maybe also for us to understand the general relationship to power um, insofar as there's no hard target at which this power is being exercised. 
there's the mentality of security, but there's no clear cut definition of what is security or for that matter, what is peace. There's, um, there's just a, a very harsh conflict with even you know, Jewish ideas of history, which to my understanding is like basically inherently teleological. You know, we know that history is advancing towards a certain end goal and an end state. And when we're not, you know, clarifying that, we're not moving towards it, we're not using our resources to engage in the pursuit of those ideals, you know, we flounder, we're stuck. And any potential to move, you know, rapidly in one direction, the negative aspect of that would just be a very, very harsh, harsh neutrality and a very painful neutrality, which is clearly damaging both ourselves and our neighbors. I think uh, Yellen Moore's relationship to the Israeli establishment, especially the Ben-Gurion-led Mapai um, establishment in the early years of the country, are also really important for understanding his unique perspective. Uh, we're talking about someone who basically, as soon as independence was declared, was arrested by the Israeli authorities um, for his part in the assassination of uh, UN Representative Folk Burndout, who had planned to divide our country and came to oversee that division. Um, so we're talking about someone who, from before the state and at its very outset, is very much on the outs from a political establishment, who he saw as acting very much in favor of and on behalf of uh, the UN, the British, and all sorts of foreign powers that were trying to, to decide our fates for us. Uh, so it's no surprise that going forward, he was so drawn to the Cold War Not Aligned movement and to a general perspective that saw Israel at least having the potential to play a really unique role as a, a liberated a former colony in leading a post-colonial world and in partnership with uh, everyone from the leaders of India and Indonesia rather freed uh, British colonies, to even uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, the leader of Egypt, who Ben-Gurion was regularly going to war again. Right. And even at the beginning of the state, when Yelen Moore was in Knesset with the Lohamim party, the Fighters Party, you know, they had a very interesting set of positions that actually included tearing down the colonial policies of the British mandate, meaning in many ways, the state of Israel when the state of Israel was founded, what essentially happened was the British left and Israel declared independence and stuck a bunch of Jewish decorations on the structures of the British mandate regime, on a British colonial system. And this isn't something that most Jews thought about. This isn't something that, I mean, I don't even see people like Menachem Begin, who was essentially the main opposition figure during the first few decades of the state, this isn't something we hear, but early on, I think Yellen Moore identified that we need to tear this down. I mean, this is part of that post-colonial conversation where we need to actually think about what kind of policies, institutions actually express our identity, express, you know, the values that we think should permeate the society we're trying to create here. I think it's even more admirable that he was advocating those positions right away because a lot of us try and, I don't know if it's the right word, but we, we almost excuse the, the fact that we didn't right away act in that way because we were at war right away. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was just a very complicated time period, obviously. 
but he was advocating from the very beginning that we need to be a country that is leading in the region um, and also indigenizing right away. And I think that's even more admirable in 2021 when we're looking back. It's almost easy for us to figure all this stuff out now, not just the benefit of hindsight and everything that's happened in this country over the last seven decades and all the things written by people like uh, Frantz Fanon and other post-colonial thinkers, you know, Yellen Moore, as you said, really saw this right away that like, we need to indigenize into the region. We need to divorce ourselves of the colonial structures and policies of the British regime that was here, which was so convenient for Mapai. It was really so convenient for the state of Israel and its ruling party to just take all the structures that were already in place and kind of slap their decorations onto. Uh, but, you know, obviously what Yellen Moore, what Gera was suggesting was much more difficult. It was really hard work, but necessary work for not just us, but any nation that liberates itself from foreign rule, especially, I mean, any people that has to go through an anti-imperial struggle and taste victory you know, even if they're just occupied in their own land for X amount of years. But we, you know, and I'm not saying this even to excuse us, although I think this needs to be taken into consideration. We have so much deep colonization, not just in our own country, but really in the belly of the beast. I mean, we were taken out of our land and we spent, especially Ashkenazi Jews who suffered traumatic persecution, I think much more harshly. The level of persecution was just so much more intense and traumatizing in the places we were, the way we were treated by Western civilization, you know, the Christian world, Europe. It's easy to understand, but obviously doesn't excuse the healing that needs to still take place. You know, the fact that we did behave as a people that really hadn't struggled with or moved past the thing, and, and still haven't struggled with or moved past the things that are really holding us back and preventing us from being what we came back to life to be. There's a really interesting chapter in the first tithe uh, from Dr. Israel Dad, which I'm pretty sure is titled, We Were Too Patriotic, about just immediately dissolving the movements, uh, the Lehi, into Sahel. And sort of, you know, resting on our laurels and being like, okay, well, we got the British out. Now, job's relatively over for now. We'll deal with, you know, what's directly in front of us. And uh, how nothing Yellen Moore was able to, you know, look beyond that mentality of, like, the goal just being Leotam Chofshi Be'etzion Be'etzion which wasn't even accomplished at that point. But Leotam Chofshi, that was engaged with and it looked like it was coming you know, to fruition, but the capacity to see beyond and to look into, you know, to see the potential of what the Jewish people can be and what the state of Israel can be used to accomplish on the international stage, um, kingdom of Greece and the holy nation, however you want to configure it, that is a spirit in which sorely needs a return to today, to express and channel today. Right, right. Yeah, I, I just want to cut back um, to what you said. It was convenient for Mapai to just sort of fall into the structures that the British Empire left here. I, I don't think it's just that. They were for a long time were like in cahoots with the British. They also, a lot of the leaders in Mapai definitely had an Orientalist view of our neighbors and even of non-Ashkenazi Jews. I think that not, not just the but most people who are in Lehi came from a, like a very different mindset 
they sort of understood that this is actually where we belong. Like our neighbors are the people who we should be combining forces with. And I think it was just a sort of a more natural conclusion to come to. Whereas Mapaive, it was not just convenient, but it, it fell into their worldview to just continue the British structures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what Danita is saying is, is just another example of how, um, how difficult it is to impose this right-left uh, dichotomy onto Israeli politics. Because if, if you look at the Mapai movement objectively, you wouldn't identify them with the left necessarily, especially given all the examples Danit gave, which are all true. Um, and you probably wouldn't give the, the fighters list, the right wing uh, label. I just think that this is sort of part of that conversation that we're stuck in. And I think it's because of foreign influence. And I think we're polarizing because of that, even today. I, th- I think part of it is not buying into either paradigm, not to identify as necessarily on this side or that side, but really to be able to develop our own unique lens based on our own identity, set of experiences, worldview, etc. I don't think I have the answer per se, but I think that we can work towards uh, an even more diverse um, political spectrum that, that just encompasses way more ideas and is also expressively Jewish. I don't know exactly what it looks like. It may include, you know, character traits of all the tribes. I don't know for sure the final answer, but it's definitely a conversation we should have. Right. And I think the tools to have that conversation exist more on the left, or at least the post-colonial left. Uh, You know, people always say, well, wait a minute, if you're rejecting a Western paradigm, why would you align with the left if both the left and the right are really part of this Western paradigm? But on the left, you actually have a, you know, recognition, or certain parts of the left anyway, recognition that there are like different peoples, different cultures in the world with different sets of experiences, identities, etc., And I think a lot of post-colonial ideas actually can be useful in us getting over the trauma of 2,000 years of exile, healing and becoming the identity, becoming the people, becoming the nation that we came back to life in order to be after 2,000 years. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things about this non-aligned movement that came about in the Cold War is that while they're inspired by ideas that we recognize as very leftist, post-colonial theory and anti-colonial struggle, they didn't align themselves with the established Soviet Union or even China officially. Um, Out of this kind of self-critical inclination to not be boxed in, to not be defined by what either the right um, in the West or the left of the Soviet bloc uh, established as as policy, but to really have the, the freedom to, to make their own way as part of the decolonization of their political systems and cultures. I think that's definitely true, that even because of what the left-wing project really is and because of what it's fighting against, we have this interesting dichotomy where just by pursuing our struggle, like pursuing the Jewish struggle, you kind of wind up on the left if you do it if you're doing it properly. Meaning, if you're actually doing it according to the vision of our prophets and sages and fighting for the world that 
we've been fighting for or that we were tasked with fighting for thousands of years ago that kind of puts us into the left-wing camp without necessarily having to align ourselves with any specific actor. Like we don't have to align ourselves, you know, I guess in Yellen Moore's time with the Soviet Union, Although I think in certain instances, he probably was pro-Soviet, and it's true that the Soviet Union did give Lehi support, and initially even the State of Israel support, expecting it to be some kind of revolutionary state. Um, or today, like, I don't think we necessarily have to align with this struggle or that struggle, unless we genuinely think that struggle is just or, or intersects with ours or deserves our support. But just by being, like you said, just by being non-aligned, but fighting against injustices, certainly systemic injustices and certainly systemic injustices that are derivatives of the capitalist system that automatically puts you on the left, so to speak, even if you're trying to develop your own culture, idea, political identity, etc. So yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying about how, you know, if we follow our own process of decolonization and pursuing the Jewish struggle and fighting our own battles, choosing our own friends, we're going to find natural allies on the left. At the same time, as I was saying before about, you know, engaging with the entire right-left dichotomy or allowing it to sort of structure your uh, political worldview, so to speak, I think there are some implicit dangers in that, specifically for people who are finding themselves very, like, engaged with uh, Western political thought and who are from, you know, like the Mapai sort of side. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the the dangers, I guess, of engaging with that right-left dichotomy is... um, it kind of can, you know, exacerbate, I think, maybe a little bit of that generational trauma where a lot of people from, you know, the Yeshuv and, you know, who weren't necessarily part of or like or inheritors of the uh, revolutionary ideology of the Lehi, um, experience the state of Israel as a gift from the West through the repetition of the Balfour Declaration and, you know, the UN partition plan and, like, yeah, you can have a state. And that sort of feeling that like, oh, if they don't conform with those powers who gifted the land of Israel, then it could very easily be taken away. And which is, you know, false, as, as we know, like talking about Netanyahu and more and talking about the Lehi, people actually liberated the land um, and who would know implicitly that it was not a gift, but it was liberated, blood, sweat and tears. Mm-hmm. There's that gap in understanding and that... Um, that trauma relationship that I think we have to be very careful uh, in terms of directly engaging. A backfire effect is a very real thing. Right. And I think that a lot of the behavior we saw during the Trump era of Jews looking at Trump as having gifted us the Golan Heights, gifted us Jerusalem. You know, I think that was very reminiscent of what you're saying. And, and it showed us that it's not just a problem that we suffered from decades ago, it's a, it's a problem that's still in us. It's a sickness that's still in us. And if we don't actually, um, if we don't confront our problems, we won't be able to overcome them, even if they're buried deep. And, uh, you know, when we have U.S. presidents like Barack Obama, you know, or George H.W. Uh, Bush or uh, Jimmy Carter or anybody that, you know, we can say was overtly hostile to the state of Israel, it's easy to say, okay, we need freedom or, okay, we need to be more independent. We shouldn't listen to the Americans. But we see that when somebody like Donald Trump or even George W. Bush before him comes along and acts like a friend and starts, you know, taking pictures of our prime minister and, and feeding into all of the like standard APAC talking points, 
you see the Bemet, I don't know a better word than mental slavery. Like you see the slavery resurface, this attitude, this uh, mentality resurface where we see ourselves and almost want to see ourselves as the Robin to America's Batman in the Middle East. <laughs> or as the tool of imperialism, or the villa of the jungle, you know, this outpost of Western civilization in the Middle East that Gera, that Nathaniel and Moore, like, fought against his whole life. Yeah, I agree. I think it's extremely uh, harmful to our narrative when Israel is viewed as a, as a gift from the West. And I think it's not only that uh, generational trauma that Yona was talking about, but I don't want to generalize too much, but adversaries of Israel do tend to only look at Israeli history since, or the Jewish history in the land since 1948, and they're not looking back to the mandate of Palestine, let alone uh, Sykes-Picot or or the presence of Jews uh, during the Ottoman Empire, or even before that since um, the exile. And I think that's part of why the history of Lehi is so important and, and Yellen Moore is because there's so much history that most Jews don't know about, let alone, you know, the rest of the world and, and why this really wasn't a gift from the West and why we weren't just, you know, handed the land back after 2000 years. Right. And it's interesting. I think most people, most Palestinians and most people in the pro-Palestinian camp have trouble dealing with Israel's anti-colonial struggle. And I've heard some very weird explanations or ways of understanding our fight against the British. And I think that, I mean, it's important to understand that this unwillingness to honestly engage with the narrative or history or identity of the other is not unique to us, meaning the Palestinians and their supporters have this problem as well. In this situation where in this conflict, we really do speak past each other and fight past each other all the time. And you're right. I think like one of the great examples of something that the pro-Palestinian community just can't wrap its head around or properly engage is Lehi, is the fighters for the freedom of Israel. And I think what they often do is just kind of dismiss it as a far-right anti-Palestinian organization, which it wasn't. You mean, first of all, you had Palestinian members, number one. Number two, as we discussed before, the political party that Lehi, that Lehi formed when the state was established was one of the only political parties in the country that had both Jews and Palestinians on its list of candidates. But also, there are clear examples of, you know, Lehi, even from the perspective of policy, you know, when the two Eliyahu's, Eliyahu Betsuri and Eliyahu Hakim, went to Cairo to assassinate Lord Moyne, they were caught specifically because they refused to shoot an Egyptian police officer because the Lehi saw, and again, this most definitely came from Nathaniel and Moore because he was the political leader and he was, you know, from the international perspective, the Lehi was Yellen Moore. He took the position and the organization took the position that the Egyptians are our allies, that they are our natural partners in what we hope will become a shared anti-imperialist front of peoples of the region rising up against the British, against the French, um, not letting the Americans in afterwards, maybe not letting the Soviets in afterwards. Uh, and I think that Yellen Moore might actually be the secret to making it okay for Palestinians and their supporters to start engaging with Lehi because Yellen Moore is somebody who, as Denis pointed out earlier, really did understand their struggle and even gave voice to their struggle to a certain extent within Israeli society, within the Israeli media. Uh, so maybe, maybe that's an opportunity. Maybe that's uh, something to try, maybe beginning with 
the legacy and activities of Yellen Moore, and then trying to shift people's focus to see, well, wait a minute, there was this whole organization that he led that fought the British Empire, that wanted to unite uh, the region, that wanted Israel not to be an outpost of Western civilization, but to indigenize into the region. Meaning, yes, we were gone, and yes, we came back with baggage, and yes, we have this identity crisis, but there was a clear direction in Yellen Moore's head that we need to become an organic part of the Semitic region. He didn't like saying Middle East, because, you know, middle of what, east of where, you know, he liked saying the Semitic region. Um, and, and it was like an act of decolonization. It was part of, you know, okay, you have to come back to your land and learn your language and fight the occupier and free your land. But there's also this like this cultural goal or this goal from the perspective of identity that you have to go back or at least not necessarily go back to what you were thousands of years earlier, because I think that's very much a caricature of the decolonization discourse. I think it's more that you have to figure out who you are now in relation to your neighbors and actually struggling with the changes that took place as a result of the oppression and persecution you suffered and figuring out what you want to put right and figuring out what you want to put back in a way that will allow you to live normally, like Denise said before, not to be constantly on defense, not to always be thinking about security problems, but to be able to solve those problems so you can just develop who you are. So I just want to sort of underscore just how sensitive Netanyahu was to the struggles of the Palestinian people. You know, he he wanted us to indigenize into the region and and he he understood that in order for there to be real peace, the Jews and the Palestinians living here actually had to understand and recognize and accept the other side's story. And he, from what I understand, he never downplayed the Jewish right to the land of Israel. You know, we were here, we were exiled. We tried for thousands of years to come back and we did it. But when we got here, the land wasn't empty. There was a people here who'd been here for generations. They had their children here. They buried their grandparents here. Um, They planted trees, they built homes. And they also, you know, suffered being colonized under the Ottomans and the British. And I assume that's why several of them joined Leche in order to free their land from the British too. (laughs) Um, And it's, it's something that most Jews in Israel don't really understand or accept. And, you know, on the other side, a lot of Palestinians don't really know or accept our story. And, and that is, you know, a prerequisite to making real unity in the Semitic region. Oh, for sure. You know, just to go off what you were saying about Yellen Moore's focus on dealing with the present and, you know, what do you do in the context of returning to the land and not focusing so much on the past? Um, I think it's an extremely important point, especially when trying to demonstrate, you know, our story to um, the Palestinians. Because to my understanding, like referring to a sort of mythic past can come off as far-right reactionary or even fascistic. For sure. Mm-hmm. And so consequently, there's this sort of, this very delicate balance which has to be struck, given that our our scope of history and our historical awareness and consciousness is much longer. <laughs> and it, it spans a, a huge amount of time, um, especially, you know, compared to modern stories of, you know, occupation and expulsion and um, so there, there is that, you know, balance, which has to be struck, I think. And it could be one of those sort of just like heuristic issues 
which uh, can come up and has to be addressed. Right. We're not trying to return to, you know, that like mythic past of, you know, before the Roman exile, but that at the same time, that was a very real historical trauma that we're engaging with. And that this isn't, you know, a reactionary sort of movement. It's, uh, it's revolutionary. It's, it's to move forward. It's to engage with the world as it is and as it can be, not as it once was. Right. I, I think we hear that a lot, this idea of, uh, of us trying to, not just us, our movement, but I think Israel in general, like as a state or, you know, Zionism as a movement was looking at this mythic past and trying to recreate it. And that is very common among fascist movements. I think that that accusation or that assumption uh, when it comes to Jewish liberation misses the, first of all, I think it completely misunderstands our story, like what story we're actually living and have been living for many centuries. And it doesn't understand that it's not just like we had this incredible past, glorious past, thousands of years ago that, uh, you know, was taken away from us back then. And uh, okay, and like life moved on, and we were just living normally like everybody else for many, many centuries. And then we got this idea, we need to recreate that mythic past. That's not what happened to us. That's not our story. Our story is that that initial injustice that destroyed our civilization, that destroyed our national framework, that destroyed Jerusalem, and uh, sent many of us into exile, it wasn't a one-off. Meaning almost everything that happened to us in the exile was a direct derivative of that initial injustice. And during that time, from generation to generation, we were telling our children that we are going to go home. There was this conscious struggle, this desire that was expressed, you know, three times a day through the tefillot and a few days a year through national days of mourning and fasting, uh, we were obsessed. Even every wedding, every Jewish wedding, essentially included a declaration, like if I forget Jerusalem, I should forget my right hand. Like there was this constant burning desire to return and attempts to actually do so. Uh, I think a lot of these attempts to associate Jewish liberation with the fascist right, don't understand the extent to which the Jews had been practically trying to return to our land and practically trying to restore independence at least once a century throughout the time of our exile. Zionism was just a movement that succeeded. And, you know, I, I think it's just objectively obvious that up until Zionism's success, the Jewish people was arguably one of the most oppressed people in human history certainly in the years leading up to Zionism success, or certainly in the years leading up to Lehi success, because, you know, that's another interesting conversation, whether or not we would consider Lehi to be Zionist, and Yellen Moore for sure took the position that Lehi is not a Zionist movement. You know, he looked at Chaim Weizmann as a Zionist, and he looked at the Haganah as Zionist, and he looked at the Golden Meir as Zionist, and even the Etzel as Zionist, but he said Lehi is not a Zionist movement. This is a native people's liberation movement. And yeah, we had to start from less than zero. Yeah, we had to come back to our land from the diaspora because of terrible things that happened to us. But we need to be thinking in terms of a native people fighting for its liberation, fighting to free its land, and not adopt the mindset of a colonial project, which is what a lot of the Zionists did. And it's not for nothing that you can see so many similarities between Zionism and colonialism, because the Zionist movement 
did adopt many colonial methods, many colonial structures. Just the methodology of Zionism was very colonialist. And of course, the political leadership of the Zionist movement definitely collaborated with the British which is also awkward because you have a situation where the freedom fighters led by Yellen Moore, who actually succeeded in defeating British imperialism, were marginalized by the state that emerged as a result of their efforts, while those Jewish leaders, the Zionist leaders, who had collaborated with British imperialism actually took the state, took power, and were able to shape the state, you know, especially during the initial years of independence in their image, which is obviously something that Yellen Moore continued to fight against uh, throughout the early decades of the state. If I could just add something real quick onto that, um, not only were the Zionist leaders and members of, you know, that ideology um, acting in a colonial manner and using the methodology and the tools of colonialism, they related to Zionism explicitly as a colonial project. If you look at letters um, from Herzl, and I believe also Ben-Gurion and Weizmann, two different um, you know, authorities trying to drum up support for the Aliot and stuff like that, or for Zionism in general, they referred to it explicitly as a colonial project and were therefore like, do you want in on this colonial project? So yeah, it was very much like all encompassing at, at that level. Right, so I, I think the question there is the extent to which they really saw it that way versus how much they were trying to speak in the language of the people they were addressing. Uh, for sure, I think it's clear and I, and I think it's important for us to be able to distinguish between like identity and action between noun and verb. Uh, the Jewish people are a people from this land, yet in many cases, we've unfortunately behaved like colonizers. And those aren't mutually exclusive. Like for example, I think Herzl and Ben-Gurion and Jabotinsky, who, who also uses a lot of that language, definitely thought of the Jewish people as being from this land, of having been displaced from this land against our will and having struggled to come back to this land and restore independence for many, many centuries. Yet at the same time, they were in practice doing colonialism and they were, they were behaving as colonizers in many instances. And certainly when they were trying to um, curry favor you know, with the Western powers, specifically the British, because the British, you know, after World War I ruled Palestine, they definitely used a language that was a colonial language. And, and it's a good question whether or not that was like the language at the time or, or the language that was politically expedient versus them actually thinking of themselves as doing colonialism. I think that the accusation um, that we're just trying to go back to some mythic past or archaic primitive past is a tool of the colonizer in order to stunt our growth. Uh, and not allow us to grow in our true selves, into our true selves. I think there's a lot more to be said on it, but maybe not on this particular episode. Mm -hmm. no, that's a good point. In the same vein, I think it's so important to remember that the histories of especially the struggle against the British and the war for independence uh, that paint the lefty and Yellen Moore as both you know, fascist, nationalist, right-wing forces and these you know, primitivist attempts to restore a 2,000-year-old monarchy were almost exclusively written and publicized to the Israeli public, but also to the broader world by the Haganah and the Istadrut and Ben-Gurion's institutions. 
in cooperation with and coordination with the British, specifically in order to discredit the Lefty and its work uh, in the foundation of a state and in order to consolidate Ben-Gurion's power. So just being aware of that dynamic when we're engaging this history and these movements uh, is really instructive in being able to see them uh, not for how they were painted by their rivals, but for what they were really saying and advocating in their own words. Right. No, that's a great point. And uh, my wife, Sharona, who you all know, was studying Lehi for her doctorate. And one thing she explained to me, and, you know, this is very easily recognizable, that the way in which Israeli academia evolved, you know, from the beginning of the state until today, uh, was such that at the beginning of the state, the historiography was essentially towing a very pro-Mapai, like labor Zionist line, uh, which cast Lehi as kind of the bad guys along with the Etzel and just kind of threw them into the Jabotinsky camp, just threw them into the revisionist Zionist camp. But then later on, you know, in the 80s and 90s, with what's called the revisionist historians, where um, there was a lot more criticism of Zionism uh, in Israeli academia, there was, you know, they just had already dismissed Lehi as being some creature of the right, um, that there was never really any interest in taking a second look, because now they were up to just discrediting the mythology of Zionism without questioning whether or not some of the actors who had been painted by the establishment in the beginning of the state might have actually been something other than uh, they had been presented as. So the academics here have never really taken a closer look, although I did speak the other day with somebody uh, who is uh, studying Yellen Moore for his doctorate, and uh, he's not done yet. He doesn't have his, his PhD, but, but when he does, maybe we'll uh, talk to him. Uh, maybe it'll be safe enough for him to have a real conversation with us, because one of the reservations he expressed about coming on the show was he's very concerned, you know, I think before he completes his doctorate, he's very concerned about his research being perceived as right-wing or left-wing or being used in any political direction, uh, and I guess that's a concern a person has to have when they're studying uh, somebody like Nathaniel and Moore. <laughs> What's considered to be the authoritative book on Lehi by Joseph Heller really does malign the movement, uh, maligns Yellen Moore. I spoke to, I actually spoke to Yellen Moore's son the other day, uh, who, you know, when, when we were talking, agreed that yes, you know, when my mother read that book, she was very upset and felt that he had gotten it wrong. And uh, when my wife was doing her research into Lehi, she came to the conclusion that Heller's research was really, really problematic, just from an academic perspective. So I'm hoping that more and more people, even at the level of academia, re-examine Lehi, re-examine figures like Nathaniel and Moore, uh, and others uh, who fought the British to free our country and actually bring to light uh, many of the things that we know in our movement, but a lot of people outside of our movement just have no clue about. I think having these sort of dialogues and maybe even in the future, if we focus on uh, figures from the Lehi, also giving some biographical information as a part of the uh, dialogue, like character sketch history and stuff, because a lot of people as we've discussed, don't have any form of, you know, uh, understanding of the lives and the beliefs of these very potent and powerful and formative figures uh, in our modern history um, as people. It's just that this is a great opportunity for education.
Yeah, for sure. Just for listeners, would you say there are any specific books that you would recommend to learn more about figures like Yellen Moore? Uh, well, in English, there's a great article at visionmag.org, you know, Vision Magazine. There's actually a, a few articles. There's one on Yellen Moore, one on the Fighters Party, um, a few on Lehi uh, that are worth looking into. Unfortunately, there's not a lot available in the English language. Of course, we can link to the Vision Mag articles in the show notes. Anybody who really wants to pick up a good book about Lehi, I would suggest The Deed by Gerald Frank. I think that's always a good place to start. Um, there are others. El Nakam by Esri Yachin is actually a, a very good one and a very easy one, especially for you know young readers. Uh, every chapter is just like two, three pages, moves very fast. It's really coming from the perspective of a teenage boy in Jerusalem fighting the British Empire, you know, in his cells. Of course, Lehi operated according to a cell structure so that nobody caught would be able to reveal the identity of, of anybody else. Everybody, of course, had code names and different code names when dealing with different cells. It, it was structured really like according to this almost like Russian anarchist uh, model. Um, there are others. Voice of Valor. It, it was actually originally called Woman of Violence when it first dropped. Voice of Valor. There we go. It's a great book. And hearing more about women involved in the movement is always interesting perspective. Right, for sure. Voice of Valor. It, it was Gula Cohen's book. She just left our world a couple of years ago, actually. But uh, her book is hard to find. But we do have a PDF copy that we link to at Division Magazine's article on Geula Cohen. If you go to visionmag.org and you just search for Geula Cohen, G-E-U-L-A-C-O-H-E-N, um, at the bottom of that piece, you'll find a link to her memoirs in English. Very hard book to find, but that's why we put the PDF there. But yeah, I, I would definitely say The Deed by Gerald Frank is a good first book to pick up. Uh, and after reading a couple books, I would recommend the translation of of Yisrael Eldad's book, The First Tithe, which I think is incredible, uh, but it's not giving you the perspective of Yellen Moore, it's the perspective of Eldad, which is also very important, uh, but, uh, but not exactly what we're speaking about here. Um, so yeah, Voice of Valor by Gula Cohen, The Deed by Gerald Frank, uh, El Nakam by Israel Khin, and of course, The First Tithe by Israel Eldad, and uh, hopefully the two books that were written by Nathan Yellen Moore will eventually be translated into English and be available to the wider English-speaking public. Uh, there's also for the bilingual listeners out there, uh, Oded Peled has a really interesting article specifically about the post-independence uh, kind of political social club activities, um, both of Israel Eldad uh, around his magazine Sulam, as well as Yellen Moore and the Semitic Action Movement uh, around their own publications. Definitely worth checking out as well. Is there a link we could put in the show notes? Yeah, it's the one I sent you earlier, but I can send you again. All right, great. Um, so let's do that. And uh, so listeners can check that out as well. Thank you so much for joining me. Sam, Danit, Yona, Arye, Shai, young visionaries. And I look forward to having you guys on again or expanding this one way or another. And I hope that everybody uh, has been able to learn not only about Nathaniel and Moore, but also about some of the topics that I think his thought and legacy behoove us to really think about and apply to Jewish liberation in our generation and to many of the challenges confronting our people. This is Yuda Kohen of the Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Check out the show notes for this episode at 
visionmag.org backslash the next age four six. 